0: Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. This is Bill Schmidt, and I'm joined uh, by Dr. Paul Giesing, my friend and colleague on this uh, journey pursuing the exciting lines of thought in the physics and metaphysics, faith and reason, and the future, present, actually past, present, and future. But uh, uh, just looking back at our uh, most recent uh, past, episode uh Paul um we were in the process of talking more about science and religion and kind of the uh, implied uh similarities but also uh differences and separations between the two uh it might be helpful at this point to talk about the philosophy of science and what science actually is what we believe we're doing when we do science. And I wonder if you would uh, talk about that for a minute as our way of delving deeper into that, uh, uh synergy between philosophy, uh, between religion and science.
1: Yeah. Uh, last time, you know, the last few episodes we've been talking about evolution and we, you know, made the perhaps somewhat controversial case to at least in some people's eyes that, uh, you know the Christian faith incorporates a certain amount of evolution. Maybe now we can look at you know whether science and religion are so completely uh, inimical to each other, whether they're on parallel tracks that will never meet, or whether they actually have anything in common. Um, but yeah. so we can start with this idea of you know the philosophy of science, which is a obviously a prominent field today in philosophy, and people are people are still kind of all over the place. You know, I I don't know that there is really a single paradigm. There are a lot of ideas that have gotten a lot of airplay and my own exposure to it. It really comes from, I was, I was first really introduced to these style of ideas in a capstone class. I had in undergrad, one of um, many good experiences I had in undergrad, um, in my, uh, in my major. And it was, uh, We talked about geology specifically because I am a geologist, but it brought in, it brought in, we had, we did a certain amount of reading from a guy named Karl Popper, pretty famous name in philosophy of science. Um, He's famous for, among other things, perhaps most notably, his idea that if you're doing science, you're making some kind of claim that it's possible to prove wrong. It's falsifiable. Um, And we also read some of a guy named Kuhn, uh structure of scientific revolution re, scientific revolutions, which is a almost I mean philosophy of science can shade off into sociology. What do scientists actually do? How do they actually behave um, mm-hmm. in groups? <laughs> because the whole endeavor of science is something that involves you know communication and groups of people working. Um, ever larger groups of people working on ever more complicated problems. So that that idea of what happens when people, you know, and, and identifying paradigm shifts in the history of science and understanding how that relates to um, how science is done, whether there's, you know, so so we'll, we'll bring in some of those. But those are, and, and, you know, part of my hope in the podcast is to, you know, at least talk about people that I've read and put, you know, names and, of works out there that are worth um, reading if you haven't. And, you know, of course, I want to start a discussion eventually about, You know things that other people have read, and I wouldn't be at all averse to having people suggest things for me to uh, to add to my uh, collection. But so so where does science begin? So you know modern science, where do you want to draw the line? You could start it with Copernicus, you could start it with um, you could start it with Newton, uh, you could start it somewhere in between. Um, Lots of people choose to to stop with Galileo, who would be somewhere in between. But it's, and, and it's one of those things that people today tend to, and, and have for a while, have for the last few centuries at least, chosen to see a just, you know, and out of the murk came science, right?
0: <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> of course, uh, you know, that's that's not exactly, especially, especially as people, you know, who are, who, who enjoy being the heirs to the, uh, the world view of the Middle Ages with its you know, prominent Catholic element, its dominant Catholic element. Um, we can, we can uh, smile a little bit wryly at that, because nothing happens in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, so what was but what was science for once? And for a while it had this name, uh, natural philosophy, depending on what you were talking about, uh, especially... When you, if you were talking about the animal world or the world of rocks and fossils, you know, which is of course where those sort of overlap, you had this name natural philosophy tagging along. And it was understood that, you know, this was sort of part of philosophy. And gradually that understanding shifted. And science became, you know, not only understood as being antithetical to religion, but almost probably earlier it became understood perhaps as being antithetical to philosophy, and people, you know, people continued to try to do both of them, but there became this understanding that science was dealing with real stuff, and philosophers were doing all of this airy-fairy stuff that, you know, you could either be sneering, you know, looking down your nose at, uh, you know, the, the supplement part three of uh, the Summa Theologiae, where, uh, the person who is given the unenviable task of trying to finish uh, Thomas Aquinas' masterwork, um, you know, debates how many angels you can fit on the head of a pin, or something like that, I think is one of the infamous things that gets debated there. I mean, I I remember reading through the table of contents, and there are a whole bunch of articles with titles like, you know, on the clarity and the agility of the blessed or something like that, things that perhaps we were going a little too far out on a limb Speculating to quite that level of depth on maybe maybe those weren't maybe those speculations weren't all that firmly grounded. So there was that you know that, that was perhaps a bit ridiculed by people who had championed science. You know, science gives us actual facts. Uh, but then there's the whole philosophical tra- uh, tradition that you know stems from Descartes and then from a certain perspective, just keeps, you know, <laughs> hits rock bottom and continues to dig and gives us all sorts of strange things like Berkeley and idealism. and But for that matter, it also gives us Kant and Hume and all of these people who, you know, take Descartes' initial program of doubting everything that can be doubted and, you know, just keep writing it and writing it and writing it.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and you get that whole critical tradition. And you get, you know, like I said, various forms of idealism which, which you know, exist, you know, and they, they spring from that tradition, they exist in tension with that tradition. There's a whole, you know, 18th and 19th century philosophy from a certain point of view is just this massive morass of people quarreling about things um, on into the 20th century for that matter. And that science is seen as apart from that, superior to that, you know, we're dealing with actual stuff here. And, and, you know, there's this understanding of this complete tension between them. But, of course, yeah. philosophy is, the thing about philosophy is it's, you know, sort of the study of everything, right? You know, everything can fit into your, phil- needs to, if you're intellectually consistent, everything needs to fit in your mind into some sort of conceptual, philosophic framework. Otherwise, you're just sort of doing hack, hack work, which, of course, a lot of people do. Um, don't don't worry about examining like quite we said their metaphysics they don't really examine their their own actual epistemology what they believe they're actually what what their actual relationship is with the world all sorts of things most of us even people in science who who make a habit of examining assumptions and testing results and looking for inconsistencies out there so to speak in their chosen field um, are not necessarily looking for it Inside themselves. Right. That's a good point. But in any case, so the philosophy of science, you know, in a way, attempts to bridge this gap between science and where modern philosophy has trended over the last few centuries since Descartes. Um, and it's and it again, it's 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 a controversial field. People quarrel a bunch about things, and it, it is very hard to to come to some sort of understanding. You know, people people propose ideas, and they tend to take their idea and you know, march around with it as if it was the only thing, you know, worthwhile, which, I mean, certainly Popper to some degree did with falsification, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's at state. It's a, it's a sort of immature field in that sense. It's going to be, you know, and of course, like all of philosophy, well, philosophy as we understand it now, as, you know, distinct from science, It's something where, you know, coming to a consensus is going to be very difficult because, of course, and and Popper would say, precisely because it's very hard to prove something wrong. It's hard to prove something right. You know, the flip side of falsification is verification. And while Popper would, at least at certain points or long stretches of his career, would disparage that idea, um, they're really two sides of the same coin. You know, so, for example, if you, if you observe, you know, the, one, one of the classic examples is the observation of, you know, a new planet, like the discovery of Neptune. So, okay, yeah. Neptune is, you've, you've got these few observations, and then you make a prediction, and you look at a particular part of the sky with your telescope. And if the planet is actually there, well, I mean, you have verified your calculations, Right. But they right. turn it around and look at it as saying, "And you falsified the idea that the planet was anywhere else, which would have, you know, which would have upset your uh, your idea. You know, there there could still be an alternate explanation than the mathematical model that you've built for how this planet moves that could have brought it from those first two spots to the third spot. But you know, the more observations you make, the harder that gets." you, you right. would then be starting to doubt at a lower level like your mechanism of how the planet you know got there why does it move you know I, I now know what its mathematical trajectory is but I don't necessarily know the why that would be a whole nother level of you know scientific inquiry yeah. Um, yeah. so that was um, so that's that's an, uh, an introduction to you know philosophy of science in my own you know sort of corner of the the uh, of the asylum uh, perspective on it. Uh, I haven't read everything I would have liked to have read about it. I'm not as, uh, familiar with where it's currently going. I've read some more modern works on it and can't come away with the understanding that, you know, it really is a broad muddled field that, uh, there, there isn't wide agreement on uh, what exactly we're doing. And yet
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's clear that we're going somewhere. <laughs> oh. mm-hmm. It's clear that something is happening. And right. there, there's a limited amount of credence that, uh, that there's a tendency to take that idealistic, you know, everything really exists in my mind, um, or or the sort of modern turn toward linguistics and, and quarreling about whether words really mean, you know, they, they what, what words really mean, um, and that. You know that which is an oversimplification of that whole debate. You know the Wittgenstein or, or all all of the modern linguists. I assume Chomsky and people like that. You know having never read any Chomsky myself, but you know, um, that those are the sort of uh, problems that they deal with all the time, and those are necessary to, to come to a greater you know more nuanced understanding of what we're what we mean when we're talking to each other. Um, right. So let's. So let's give an example, right? So an example of both, you know, and, and one that's, that's you know, deliberately chosen so as to take us a little bit closer to uh, stuff that we've been talking about, you know, the uncertainty principle, for example. So let's talk about the, the beginning of quantum physics. So if you have, you know, you look at the physics of the end of the 19th century, in the year 1899, you know, so by that point... We've had Newton's laws of gravity and mechanics for quite a while, and people have, you know, learned calculus, you know, learned how to solve ordinary differential equations and some special cases of partial differential equations. You apply those to Newton's laws, um, and the interaction can give you the ability to do some really complicated mechanical calculations, things like, you know, what... What shape a membrane will take when it's stretched across a framework of arbitrary shape, and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We've got uh, thermodynamics has started and progressed a long way, which also depends fundamentally on being able to do certain kinds of partial differential equations. So we can we can talk very intelligently about you know the sort of physics of how gases expand and contract and interact with heat. There's the whole field of statistical mechanics. Uh, mm. there's also electromagnetic theory, Maxwell and Maxwell's equations. So those mm-hmm. all exist and those are all part of what is has become a um, a pretty coherent mass of knowledge. There there's still, you know, there's still gaps between one of these subfields and another, thermodynamics and Statistical mechanics and, uh, and electromagnetism and, and sort of gravity and, and ordinary mechanics. Um, but people are pretty confident, you know, really, you know, we, we've got all the big ideas and it's just a question of extending them and bridging the gaps between them and we'll, we'll get it all eventually. And mm-hmm. one of the key features of this world, of course, is that it's completely deterministic. You know, the, there is great confidence in the idea that if we simply knew, and 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 implicitly, which people didn't really think about necessarily, that if we knew the position and velocity of every particle in the universe, we would know the entire universe's future, and in fact, we would know the entire universe's past because we could flip the laws around and run the calculations in reverse. Right. You know, the idea that we lived in a completely deterministic universe that it is, you know, it, it has is going to unroll in one and only one way and there is you know implied there is absolutely no role for anything beyond the things obeying Newton's laws and the you know the, these other you know Maxwell's equations there's really no room for anything that doesn't obey those those laws that's simply the work, the universe that we live in and we can know everything in theory it's possible to know everything down to you know an absolutely arbitrary level of precision as precisely right. as, as we want to. So, the problem is that right around that turn of the 19th to 20th century, big problems started to open up in quantum, in, in, in our classical understanding of the world. So,
0: hmm.
1: so, one of the aspects of this world is that light is a wave phenomenon, period. Newton actually speculated Newton was not right about everything. And certainly, mm-hmm. in any case, well, and, this, and he may have been right about this, sort of accidentally, but uh, people people were able to convince themselves that even the great Newton was wrong about certain things. So Newton had the idea that light was actually composed of, of corpuscles, I believe is the word he used. Little bodies, that's all that means. Um, huh. And very shortly after that, people, you know, started investigating the questions that, that we call diffraction and mm-hmm. interference, so there are things that, because light's a wave phenomenon, it's easier if we think of water waves, perhaps. If you <clears throat> picture a, a bay, a little, uh, a little quiet spot that has two projections of rock or two piers or something, you know, jutting out and closing off all but a short distance across the mouth of this bay. And so then you uh, picture a day with waves coming in, breaking against these two projections, and, you know, then you can imagine the wave spreading out into this quiet little bay. Can you sort of picture that?
0: Right.
1: So that's that's a wave phenomenon. The the energy spreads out and if you have more than one of these holes, you start to get these funny wave phenomena where two high points, you know, add on to each other and you get a really high wave or a high point adds onto a low point, you actually get spots where things are flat. And so people investigated the mathematics of that, and they made observations on very small pinholes and things like that, and proved to themselves that both light and sound are waves and display all these interference effects, which are, you know, again, basically what happens when you add two waves. If you add highs to highs, peaks to peaks, or troughs to troughs, you get really high peaks and really low troughs. If you had a peak mm-hmm, to a trough, mm-hmm. you get a flat spot. That, right. you extend that, and you get all of a, a very rich array of physical phenomena called, you know, diffraction or interference. So light behaves mm-hmm. that way. Light's mm-hmm. a wave, period, that's how it behaves. We know this. We understand this. These recently right. discovered right. things we call electrons, which was the that's situation in the year of 1899. Those are particles. They're little bitty bits. They have a certain amount of charge. We haven't nailed down exactly what it is yet. The Millikan oil drop experiment, I think, proved that uh, early in the 20th century. You know exactly what the size of the charge on the electron was. But nevertheless, you know, it's a it's a particle. It may be stuck in this sort of plum pudding atom, which was which was a model in the late 19th century. The positive charge was just this sort of mass of goo stretched out through space, and the electrons were the little plums or the little nuts in this plum pudding
0: yeah.
1: uh, So that we're not sure about that but we'll iron that out And in any case electrons are particles right and we know what we know how particles behave. They have a mass, they have a location, they have a velocity, they have a charge we know exactly how they interact with other charges and therefore as I said you know in the deterministic universe that we, we live in, we know exactly where this electron is going to be for all future times as long as we just know where everything else is as well. Right. right. So, so that's the world they lived in, and that world turned out was you know when, once they extended their gaze to certain problems, things started to fall apart. And it took, of course, because it was such a a rich descriptive, it had it had worked on so many problems, and it was such an attractive world philosophically. It's very determinism is very tidy for certain people. Einstein, in particular, um, is an mm. example of the idea that there is simply it is this way. Um, we the, the, and it's at least in principle, even if we can't figure it out because we don't have precise enough measuring tools or the ability to record all of this information, but at least it's in principle possible for something to know exact you know, everything exactly, and therefore to have, you know, all all knowledge of the universe is is going to behave in a way that's absolutely determined. This 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 is pleasant for some people. I'm not one of these those people, but there are people who find that very satisfying. But as and that's it turns
0: also out, to some people in the religious realm.
1: <laughs> there are people. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the Calvinist tendency, right? I mean, this is, is exactly. That's not new. Uh, you know, the idea that you know God must know everything, and if your notion of God is simplistic enough, that you know God is just this guy sitting in a chair up in heaven with you know a really sophisticated, as we would now say, a computer or maybe back then just, you know, a library, a limitlessly large library of books, yeah. um, you know, that he has all all knowledge right now because implicitly he's traveling along with us in time, but he somehow knows the whole future. Right. And therefore it's all just, you know, it's, it's all on rails and it's all going to unfold exactly this way. That, uh-huh. that satisfies some people. Yeah. um but that but things started to break down there were problems as it turned out and not and some of them were on the fringes but at least one of them was really a core problem it's okay a problem on the fringe uh, for a for a late 19th century physicist there are certain materials certain metals for example that are called photoelectric they had people had come to the realization that if you shine a light on certain metals they'll you know, essentially certain electrons will start popping out of the metal, and that will, you know, negative charge on one side, you can set up an electric circuit, you can measure the size of this effect. Mm -hmm. So, and what's really bizarre about that from the classical standpoint, is that you can't turn this effect on by simply shining a bright enough light on it. What you need is a light of a high enough, frequency. So so for a certain material, red light won't get the job done, but blue light will. But a really faint blue light will get the job done, and a certain number of electrons will start jumping. But a really, really intense red light won't do anything. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense in the classical paradigm whatsoever. It should be keyed to the intensity of the light, whether the electrons gain enough energy from the Vibrating electric field impacting the surface of a metal for the electron to be able to overcome the attraction of the, you know, positively charged plum pudding if you're still stuck in that paradigm um, and jump out into free space and, you know, be collected and measured by whatever your 19th century apparatus for that would be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so that made no sense whatsoever. Another one, and this is sort of more, this is core. (laughs) When when you look at it, this this is way too important to ignore. The other one, you know, that's just weird, and maybe we'll find some sort of uh, strange little reason why that might have to be. But this other one is uh, way too important. This is the question of what we call black body radiation, which is a strange and uh, non-descriptive name for an outsider. So what that is, is it's just a question of why do things glow when they're hot? Hmm. Which is pretty core, because why does the sun give off light? Well, because it's hot, right?
0: So that's sort of important.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a question we'd really like to understand. As well as the whole question of why does the sun even shine, and how long is it going to keep doing it, which people at the time didn't necessarily realize they had such a bad understanding of of that. It It was a recognized problem, but... The scope of the problem was not necessarily recognized. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so the thing about that is, is when you try to apply classical physics to the question of, okay, things are hot, so they're moving, that's sort of the statistical mechanics insight. Um, So we have these atoms vibrating around because they're hot, and you try to do the mathematics of how that could turn into electromagnetic radiation, and you get, and, and many... So far as I know, people, brilliant mathematical physicists of the late 19th century, at least some number of them, you know, published results, and people looked at them and said, yep, that's what the mathematics looks like. But you get this unworkable paradigm where as you go up in frequency, at low frequencies, you know, so down in what we call the infrared, things work out all right. But as you get to maybe visible light or maybe out into the ultraviolet somewhere, your graph starts to make no sense because, in reality, yeah. we know that you know. I mean, we've known this for millennia that if you heat iron up to a certain temperature, whether or not you you know judge temperatures by numbers or not, um, you know that iron will gradually it'll turn red, and if you get it even hotter, it'll glow yellow, and so on. Um, there are mm-hmm. there there is there is a spec and there's a there's a color for a given temperature, and the sun is a color, and then we and that's associated with a given temperature. But in the if you try to make the classical mathematics work out, you get this called ultraviolet catastrophe. The intensity at a given frequency just goes up and up and up and up and up, off to infinity, which has the amusing side effect that the energy being given off by an object at any temperature is infinite, and also that you know we should be being fried by gamma rays. Which they didn't even know what gamma rays were yet. Um, but, you know, somewhere off at, you know, ultra high frequencies, whatever that sort of electromagnetic radiation might be, there must be an awful lot of it. (laughs) Because, because that's the, that's the, that's, that was, and so people said that, well, obviously we've done something wrong. There's something, something wrong with this calculation. But the problem was the only way that people ever found to make the calculation come out right was to assume that somehow energy could, you know, light energy could only be released in certain packets and that the size of the packet was keyed to the frequency, which is a completely alien concept to classical physics. It just makes no sense whatsoever, but that's the foundation. And so, so the problem is, and we'll, you know, this is about, we're getting to about half an hour so we can, uh we can we can close this for today and uh, you know and start a new episode uh, from this point of departure, but <laughs> okay. we've got the whole question of okay so we've got this beautiful deterministic paradigm that we thought explained everything, but we've gotten to the point where we have a critical mass of problems that the old paradigm can't solve for us. Yeah, and so in the Cunian sense, you know, so in the Popperian sense, we've got. Which is a terrible to to take Popper's name and turn it into an adjective, Um, especially now that (laughs) the the trolls movie's out. Then you could get it confused with Poppy. That's even worse. But oh boy, yeah, (laughs) my little (laughs) mess with Poppy. But uh, but yeah, so so we've got this we've got this uh, state of of tension that Kuhn observed. You know, we we've got a certain number of observations that just can't be shoehorned into the old paradigm. And it's not going to be a case of gradual change, of gradual evolution, you know, seamlessly from the old paradigm to the new paradigm. We're going to have to break the old paradigm up and and build a new one and maybe fit the jagged old pieces of the old paradigm into the new one. But it's not,
0: it's a messy process. Very interesting, yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, we are indeed... Uh... At a dramatic turning point in the story that you're spinning on the philosophy of science, so it might be a good place to end this episode. And uh, I like this, I like the sense of uh, drama and suspense and surprise with which we're going to be entering the next episode. So, should we uh, say so long to our listeners now? And yeah. To be yeah. Very. Yeah. Glad
1: uh, glad to have you along on this journey, and uh, we'll see you next week.